In a speech, a graduation address to the graduates of Wellesley College, former First Lady Barbara Bush had this to say, at the end of your life, you will never regret not having passed one more test, not winning one more verdict, or not closing one more deal, but you will regret time not spent with your spouse, your children, or your friends. Now I know what you're thinking. We know that. That, that's old knowledge. We, we've heard that a lot. And you're right. We've talked about those things a lot. So answer this question for me. Why then are our relationships and our marriages not getting better if we know that? Do we think somehow that that particular wisdom does not apply to us? Do we believe that perhaps we have no relational flaws, that we don't need to work on anything? Relational flaws is what other people have. We don't have them. Well, if that's your attitude this morning, I've got news for you. Everyone has relational flaws. And if you don't know what yours are, just ask us. We'll be happy to tell you what they are after the service is over. I think we could all do a much better job of growing our friendships, our parenting skills, our, our relationships, and especially our marriages. I thought as a young man, that by the time I reached this point in my life, I would have become that knight in shining armor kind of husband. But I've learned. I still have a lot of chinks in my armor and rusty joints. You see, just time will never improve our marital issues. Devotion and hard work is what improves our marriages. Ask any of those this morning who have cupcake icing all around their mouth what it takes to make 50 years plus with the same person. And they'll tell you it requires effort, intensity, selflessness, patience, and total commitment on the part of both spouses. Ah, but I'm here to tell you that the dividends of that kind of investment far exceed the investment that you make. At a 50th anniversary celebration, one guest commented to the husband, Oh, wow, 50 years is a long time with one woman, to which the husband responded, Not nearly as long as it would have been without her. Now, that is a great answer. How does a person build that kind of a marriage? That's what we want to explore this morning. And some of you are thinking, Oh, do we have to talk about this? Yes, we do. The statistics are alarming. 45 to 50% of all first marriages in this country end in divorce. 60 to 70% of all second marriages end in divorce. For all of our wisdom and research and knowledge today, it seems like we're moving in the opposite direction. In the 1930s, one out of seven marriages ended in divorce. In the 1960s, 2.4 marriages out of seven ended in divorce. Do you see the trend? And while today nearly 50% of first marriages end in divorce or separation, only 25% of those that survive do so happily. Which means that 25% of the marriages that last end up being grumpy, grouchy marriages. You'd think that there would be a noticeable difference too in the divorce rate between Christian couples and non-Christian couples. But there isn't. 
the statistics are almost identical, which tells me that the challenge is great regardless of our faith and that we may not be applying the biblical principles to our marriage that we ought to be working so hard to achieve. Most divorces occur in the first three years of marriage or after the 20th year, which says you can't ever let down your guard you got to keep working from day one to the very end. Now, I realize this morning that there are many here today who have gone through divorces and separations. I also realize that you did not make those decisions lightly and that there is incredible pain in what you've endured and may still be enduring. I'm also quite certain that you did not go into marriage with the idea that it won't work. Every couple that I know of believes that their marriage will succeed to the very end. I'm sure you did your best, but I want to remind you that one part of the couple, one person in the marriage doing his or her best is not enough to keep the marriage together. Sometimes there is abuse or unfaithfulness or a lack of forgiveness that simply dooms the marriage for one or the other. This this message this morning isn't about creating guilt for you. You've had more than enough guilt in your life. And I'm thrilled that you're here, that you're a part of this congregation, because I've known divorced folks who feel like they probably aren't going to be welcome in the church. Well, folks, when you're hurting, what better place to be? If you can look around this morning and find somebody who isn't broken, who isn't hurting, would you introduce me after the service? Because I'd like to meet them. I don't know anybody like that. You see, this this message this morning is about encouraging healthy marriages. And no matter where you have been in this process, I think you would agree with me that it's our responsibility as Christians to encourage the health of our homes and our marriages. And I would be naive this morning to believe that in an assembly like this, every marriage is living happily ever after. So for those that are struggling, I hope this message will encourage you to seek help before you reach the point of no return. Don't just do it on your own. And if your marriage is good, then I hope this morning will be a reminder not to take that for granted or not to let down on working hard to make it the best it can be. Here's another concern. The number of couples living together without being married has risen 200% in the last 10 years. Now, for many, they view this as an economical way to live before marriage. They're going to save up some money, and so they're going to live together and save the costs. Or sometimes they say, I'm going to do this so I get to know my spouse before he or she becomes my husband or wife. What we fail to realize is that research bears out that cohabitation actually lessens, not enhances, the chances of a successful marriage. If you live together before you get married, that's just one more strike against a successful ending. You see, it's that attitude of non-commitment. When you're living with somebody that isn't willing to commit, it creates a huge deficit of doubt and insecurity. You may save a few dollars, but the deficit of doubt and insecurity will far outweigh those costs and savings. Personally, I want our marriages and homes to succeed. I want you to know that our leadership is committed to praying that our marriages and homes will survive and thrive. We have a married life ministry team that that is working to do 
their best to help us as a congregation find ways to encourage marital health and marital joy. And why shouldn't we as a church? Shouldn't we as the kingdom of Christ set the example for the rest of the world? Because I'm here to tell you this morning that God cares deeply about you, your home, and especially your marriage. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because he's written about it all through his word. And every time that God tries to find an example or an illustration or a picture to describe his love for us, he always returns to the image of marriage. In the Old Testament, it was the picture of marriage. In the New Testament, God calls us the church, the bride of Christ. He calls us the family of God. They are images to remind us that God has no better example of that kind of committed love. In light of those analogies and in light of the fact that God created marriage from the beginning, he's the designer and sustainer. I, I think there's no better place to turn than the Word of God for wisdom and counsel and advice. And there's some pretty good advice in First and Second Corinthians. As a matter of fact, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians is all about marriage. Uh, Paul wrote in answer to some of the questions uh, that the church sent him. We, we don't have their list of questions. That would help us to understand Paul's answers in a certain way. You can read chapter 7 later if you want to, but what I want to do is start with the introduction to chapter 7, which we find in the closing verses of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, and this is what we read. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Wow. Paul deals with some heavy thoughts in this passage, and there's a reason that he does. Last week, I told you that the city of Corinth was a powerful Greek city loved by the Roman aristocracy who would go and visit quite often. And, and the reason they did was because it was known for two things. It was known for its great wealth, and it was known for its immoral indulgence. Just outside the city of Corinth was a hill that overlooked the city. On top of the hill stood the temple of Aphrodite. Now, Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of love, beauty, and pleasure. And history tells us that every night a thousand priestesses from the temple of Aphrodite would come down the hill into the city at night and offer their services to visiting merchants, buyers, and seafarers. Such immorality made the city famous. It also made it difficult for the church to thrive because the Corinthian Christians had a distorted understanding of marriage. And so Paul writes to offer them some principles, principles that will work in our marriages and actually will work in any relationship 
that we have. Principle number one, just because something may be okay for me to do doesn't make it the wise thing to do. Paul said all things are permissible, not all things are beneficial, are preferred. Most of the time, we think in terms of simply right and wrong. But, but Paul introduces an even better measure of judgment. Instead of just asking the question, is it right or is it wrong, ask the question, is it wise? Now, just in case somebody was only half listening to what I just said, which is an entirely possible scenario here this morning, let me clarify what I mean. When God says something is wrong, it's not like we say, well, let me see if that may be wise. That's not the point. If God says it's wrong, it's wrong. That's the discussion ender. This has more to do with our understanding of what is right and how we determine it. Andy Stanley says, it's a bad idea to assume that if something is not wrong, then it must be right. You may have the right to do something, but it may not be the wise thing to do. Or you may be able to justify an action by saying, this isn't really wrong, but it may lead you where you don't want to end up. I think this is how we end up with bad moral decisions. We make a lot of little unwise choices along the way, and suddenly we are backed into a moral corner. For instance, I, I don't think most married couples intend to ever have an affair. I don't think they set out one day and say, before this week is over, I'm going to have an affair. Most people want to keep their vows. They want to be faithful to the spouse that they married. But it happens little by little. You see, there's nothing wrong with an occasional lunch with a member of the opposite sex or, or working late together at the office with a member of the opposite sex or she's so good at listening, I'm going to tell her about my frustrations at home or he is so good about keeping a confidence, I'm going to trust him with the things that are on my heart. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with those things, but I can guarantee you they aren't wise. A series of those kinds of decisions, and you'll find yourself asking the question, how did I end up in this affair and ruin my marriage? Here's another example. Some would suggest that the Bible doesn't condemn viewing pornography. After all, God designed the body to be enjoyed. Well, it is true that God designed the body to be enjoyed, but becoming addicted to pornography that will inevitably ruin your marriage begins with one look. And one look isn't wrong, you say. But it's oh so unwise. Principle number two. Immorality isn't just a sin against God, it's also a sin against our own bodies. Did you catch what Paul said? Flee. That means run. Get as far away from it as you can and as fast as you can. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Does, does, does that mean that God won't forgive me if I sin sexually? No. This isn't about the issue of forgiveness. This is about the issue of consequences. When you make certain choices, there are consequences you will live with the rest of your life. God is not some divine prude who wants to destroy our joy. To the contrary, God wants to preserve our joy. He did create the body to be enjoyed, but only in its proper context. And what context is that, you ask? It's real simple. 
the context of marriage between a husband and a wife. When people are trained to spot a counterfeit bill, they are not They are not trained by spending hours and hours and hours studying all kinds of examples of counterfeits. They are trained by studying hours and hours and hours the genuine bill, the genuine currency. Because if you know the genuine currency forward and backward, you can spot any counterfeit that comes along. To know the real thing means you also understand the counterfeit. In similar fashion, God created the real thing in marriage. Any sexual expression outside the marriage of a husband and a wife is a spiritual counterfeit and is not in God's plan. So let's stop asking how close we can get to the edge of the cliff named wrong without tumbling over and start asking the question, how can I honor God by doing what is right with my life and my body and making the wisest of choices? Well, you say, I'm just going to let love keep us together. What does that mean? I was in college when Captain and Tennille made their song, Love Will Keep Us Together, number one on the charts. It was a great song. Just last month, Captain and Tennille announced that after 39 years of marriage, love will no longer keep them together. What's it mean, love will keep us together? What does it take to make a strong marriage? What does it take to keep you together? Sometimes asking kids those questions, you get some really neat insights. Uh, Alan, age 10, said, you got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like, if you like sports, she should like it that you like sports, and she should keep the chips and dip coming. (laughs) That gives you a little bit of insight into that home, doesn't it? Kristen, age 10, said this. She said, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before, and then you get to find out later who you're stuck with. (laughs) Most adults, when they're asked, what does it take to make a good marriage, 90%, 90% say being in love. And yet when a thousand individuals were asked to define what that means, No one descriptive term even made the list 50% of the time. We're all over the map with what it means to be in love. I think when most people speak of being in love or love will keep us together, they're thinking of the attraction and the romance aspect of marriage. And, And that is so important in our relationships. But that isn't the kind of love that will keep us together. It's not the kind of love that strengthens and builds a lasting relationship. I believe the Apostle Paul gives us one of the finest descriptions of love that you'll find anywhere. And and while it was not written specifically for marriages, I can find no better description of the love that ought to be the foundation of our home. And so from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, comes this description of love. And I'm going to ask you if you'll stand with me and read these words out loud in unison so that you'll be reminded what God's Word says about love. Ready? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, 
but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. You can be seated. And you may be saying, oh, if I had somebody that would love me like that, I would enjoy being married. <laughs> I read of one woman who fashioned her prayer based on the concepts found in 1 Corinthians 13. This is what she prayed. Lord, I pray for wisdom to understand my man, love to forgive him, and patience for his moods. Because, Lord, if I prayed for strength, I'd beat him to death. She may need to work on her motivation just a little bit, but she's getting there. She's getting there. You see, the real quest is not finding somebody who will love me like that. The real quest is learning to be the one who loves our spouse like that. Elsie shared with me some research that she had gleaned on what is called the love triangle, developed by Yale University psychologist Robert Sternberg. He describes love as the three sides of a triangle, and the three sides are these, passion, intimacy, and commitment. Now, unlike the picture on the screen, it's not always an equilateral triangle. With the passing of years and from person to person, these legs of the triangle lengthen and shorten depending on the circumstances. The one side is passion. It's the biological side, the attraction and the desire for physical affection. But unless passion is connected to intimacy, it's only an exercise in selfishness. Intimacy, you see, is the emotional side. Dr. Neil Clark Warren, who developed the eHarmony.com site, says that the, number, that the lack of intimacy is the number one enemy of marriage. If two people don't know each other deeply, they can never merge or bond or become, as Genesis tells us, one flesh. If there is no emotional connection, a husband and a wife will become isolated and even alone while living under the same roof. True intimacy in marriage hinges on closeness, sharing, communication, honesty, and emotional support. The third side of the triangle is commitment. This is what the mind and the will bring to the equation. The mind and the will make the promise to be there until death do us part. The mind and the will choose to love. It's a decision, not a feeling. Commitment says, I love you simply because you are you. No ulterior motive, no selfish hidden agenda, just pure commitment. Three researchers who studied 6,000 marriages and 300 divorces concluded that there may be nothing more important in a marriage than the determination that it shall persist. You see, commitment pushes past those things which we would think would be the grounds for breaking up and says, I will not break up in spite of. Why? Because commitment knows the health and the survival of the marriage is the primary objective. And may I suggest to you this morning that Paul's description of love is the best way to keep that triangle intact. And remember this, the strongest geometric figure is the triangle. All three of those are vital to being able to keep your marriage together. 
And in the process of learning to love like that, remember that the greatest hindrance to love is the inability to forgive. Research has shown that there is a direct correlation between marriage satisfaction and forgiveness in the home. As a matter of fact, as much as one-third of marriage satisfaction is related to the forgiveness of your spouse. As forgiveness in the marriage goes up, personal distress goes down. Where forgiveness is present, there is less depression, there is less anxiety, there is less fatigue in the home. Now, in light of everything that we've talked about this morning, let me read a few thoughts out of a blog post from a man by the name of Seth Adam Smith. And he begins his blog with these words. Having been married only a year and a half, I have recently come to the conclusion that marriage isn't for me. Now, that gets your attention real quick. And he goes on to say that how he and his wife were friends for 10 years before they decided to start dating, and then they fell in love, and then they got engaged. And, and uh, Seth goes on to say that when they got engaged, he got cold feet and began to wonder, is she really the one? Is, am I making the right choice? And so he went to his dad, and he talked about his concerns, and then his dad gave him this answer. And he goes on in the blog and says this. With a knowing smile, my dad said, Seth, you're being totally selfish. So I'm going to make this really simple. Marriage isn't for you. You don't marry to make yourself happy. You marry to make someone else happy. More than that, your marriage isn't for yourself. You're marrying for a family, not just the in-law and all that nonsense, but for your future children. Who do you want to help you raise them? Who do you want to influence them? Marriage isn't for you. It's not about you. Marriage is about the person you married. Sums it up pretty good, doesn't it? That's godly advice. No true relationship of love is for you or about you or is for me or about me. Love is about the person you love. And isn't that what God demonstrated to us when he loved us more than he loved the life of his own son, giving him as a sacrifice? For our eternity. One last thought quickly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, we read these words. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. This journey of a life is best made when you build on the same faith. I do know people who both spouses share a different kind of faith, and they make it work. That's the exception more than it is the rule, I believe. I think it's important that when you start, you start with the most powerful, important aspect of your life, your faith in God. And if you follow God's plan for your marriage, it still won't be a perfect marriage, but it can be good, really good. So perhaps this morning, perhaps it's time for you to take the lead in making your marriage what it should be. Today, start by saying something. Reach out. You take the first step. Say something to make a positive difference. Don't just sit there and do nothing. Do something. Say something.